Once Paul concluded his introduction in Romans chapter 1, he got right into a primary thesis of the book, and he has been seeking to prove that up through where we left off um, uh, last time we were in the book of Romans, how all are condemned before God. doesn't matter who you are, all are guilty. So we pick up now uh, just a great, great section. Love this This is really good stuff. Let's start reading in verse 21. He has finished with that argument. And really the title of my message is the the first two words right here. But now. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you. And Lord, we ask for your blessing now, Lord, upon this time. Lord, I pray you would control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored in all that is said and done. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, I pray that you would use this in the hearts of those who are saved, who you have redeemed. Oh, Lord, I pray this would draw us closer to you, that we would have a better understanding a better understanding of all that took place so that we could be saved, that we'd begin to see the tremendous price that was paid in order for us to have salvation, that we would see ourselves not as our own, but, Lord, completely belonging to you. And, Lord, for those present who have never truly been converted, Lord, I pray that the truth of the gospel would convict Lord, that that drawing would take place that your spirit does, that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Christ. Again, Lord, may you receive all the glory and honor. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm the type of person that really, I really have to know how things work. Um, uh, um, it helps me out a lot. I, I want to have the understanding behind it. I don't want to just go through motions. I've always been that way. I remember I was brand new in the Air Force, and uh, I was at my first assignment. And I, I'd probably been after I finished all my training, been there just a couple of months. And, and the morning routine went like this: when I was just uh, just driving a fuel truck, putting fuel in the aircraft as they landed. It was a very busy base. We had a full wing of of the F-5, T-38s, and then a full wing of F-15s. So before the morning stories would land, we'd just be sitting around talking, usually an hour or two, and, and uh, we happened to get on the discussion of auto mechanics. And I'd started it because, to be honest, I had no idea how an engine worked. Um, I, again, my parents had divorced when I was really young, six years old. I, I did not know how. All I was on is I turned, the, I, I turned the car on, the thing started, I put it in gear, and it went. I had no idea of how that worked, but I really did want to know. So I began to ask the question. So it became this thing for about three days during those morning times. We were getting into the combustible in- engine. And a couple of the guys that came really got into it. They were showing up each morning with pictures for me uh, to, to get into detail of how the engine worked. It was really neat. By the third day, I got it. I understood why it was, what happened when I turned that key, what was taking place, and so I understood that there's a bunch of gerbils in that engine. And they, 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 they fed on that fuel. It was like power aid for them. And it's like 5.0 liters, how many gerbils you could fit inside there. No. No, they, they taught me very well. But I understood it, and it actually has helped me since that time, simply because I understood how it worked. Well, what Paul is diving into in this text, he's getting into the mechanics behind salvation. He's showing us why this works. And by the way, when you have an understanding of this, not only should it give you just a greater love for God, not only should it help you being able to witness to others, because the more you understand the gospel, the more effective you will be with it. It won't just have to be a memorized, programmed Romans road. You'll be able to, to... to, to, uh, 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 when you're given that gospel to another person, to present it with passion, 
where they can see, uh, uh, when you have that understanding, you can communicate it so much better so they get it. They understand what you mean. It can be such an enormous help to you. Paul has been making the case for these first three chapters, basically proving, as we saw in verse 19, that all men are condemned, that all men are guilty, that it doesn't matter who you are, whether in chapter 1, where you were the pagan, the one who simply chose to believe there is no God, to ignore God, or, or turn to idolatry, or turn to your sin, how you are condemned. You can believe all you want, there's no God. It's not going to change the fact that you are condemned. You can turn your, turn your idolatry, your sin, bury your head in the sand. It doesn't matter. The day will come when you will be judged of God. But then he turns his attention to those who are moral. Those who would think, because they try and live a moral life, that when they measure their life against what they see around them, and they think they're okay, but the truth is you're not. And Paul says, you're just as condemned. There is no difference. You're going to be judged of the same holy and righteous God. He went on from the moral people to the religious people, including the Jews. How He doesn't care how religious you are. It, going to church doesn't change the fact that you are a sinner. It doesn't matter. There, there's multitudes of people who genuinely believe because they go to church or because they, they think they live a moral life, but the truth is they don't. All of us have a wicked, vile heart. It doesn't matter who you are. Every single one of us has broken the law of God. So he has been trying to demonstrate for three chapters that it doesn't matter who you are. You are condemned before a perfectly holy, a perfectly righteous, and a perfectly just God. That in yourself you have no hope. Turn with me to Job chapter 9 this morning. Job chapter 9. It is in Job chapter 9 that Job asked one of the most important questions that any man could possibly ask. It's perhaps one of the most important questions given in the entire Word of God. Look at verse number 2. I love how he even starts it. I know it is so of a truth... But how should man be just with God? And of course, I wish I could read the rest of that because it's powerful what he gets into. How can a man who is, who is so wicked and vile, every single one, how can he possibly stand just before God? That is the question. How is that possible? This is the answer that every man needs. And this is the answer that Paul is getting ready to answer. Or this is the question, excuse me, that Paul is getting ready to answer. I, uh, one of my favorite explorers back in my middle school and high school years came to mind when I was thinking upon this and I was going through my introduction. And that is the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon who, of course, went into Florida, and, he's, and he, he thought that one of his quests was to find the Fountain of Youth, and it's debated back and forth which way he went. But no, no doubt there's still an aspect of that, that there was a curiosity there with it. And, and let's think about it. Man is searching for that. I mean, man's doing everything he can to try and stop the aging process, to do what he can. There was a story, I don't know if you read it, it came out just in the past couple of weeks, sometime in the month of August, about a man who's a multi-multi-millionaire and is doing more than anybody else to try and stop himself from aging. And so the story goes into what this man is actually doing to prevent aging. He's in his 40s right now, and they said so far the steps he has taken that he now has the equivalent of like a 21, 22-year-old is, is what he's doing. That They said, well, he's effectively taking off 20 years through the effort that he's putting in. He takes like 111 different types of vitamin and pills every day. He goes through these extreme measures. Again, I, I think it was $2 million a year what it cost him to spend on this. And, and his goal is, he said, I want to live to be 200. You know what? I got news. Even if you live to be 200, you're going to die. You're going to die. And my guess is because you've come to prominence with this, it's just a matter of months before you're dead. There's no escaping it. There isn't. 
See, Ponce de Leon and the common thought of the day that they thought was maybe there's something we could just drink from a fountain is what they thought. That there's these different, uh, it wasn't streams, I can't remember what it was in Florida, they thought that, that somehow could stop the aging process. You better look at what's causing us to age. There you'll find your answer. So why is it? There's Richard back there. Richard, you're how old? 84 years old. Richard, do you look different now than you did in 1984? Yeah, a bit. Yeah. Isn't it scary at times when you look at photos of yourself from decades ago? We're aging. I mean, I could take these off now and in the distance there, that's helping. You guys should be blurry up there. That's, That's pretty good. But we're aging. Something has taken place that is leading these bodies we have to a point of death. Why is that? Paul has been making the case for three chapters why we are dying. It's not cancer. It's not heart disease. It's not, it's not the environment around us. It's not pollution. You can eliminate all those things. You're going to die. The reason why we die, it is a consequence of sin. You are dying physically and there is a death spiritually. A separation from God in hell, which our culture no longer likes to believe in. But just because you don't believe in it doesn't make it any less real. I mean, we live in a day of victims now when we don't want to believe in difficult things. We want to avoid truth. I heard it said this week, um, I thought it was a pretty good quote. I, I don't remember who quoted it. It might have been Mark Twain or whoever it was. Yeah, I think it was Mark Twain who had said, truth is like poetry. Nobody likes it. <laughs> but Joel was asking the question in chapter 9 that Ponce de Leon should have been asking. The question is not, is there a fountain of youth? The question is, how can a man be just with God? Because it's there that you'll find your answer to be able to live an eternal life. How can I avoid the consequences of sin that I am guilty of? How can I avoid a sentence that has justly been placed upon me for my crimes? Is that even possible? Paul is going to answer that question. The answer is not in the fountain of youth. The answer is not in being moral. The answer is not in being religious. The answer is not in turning over a new leaf. The answer is not turning over to humanism. The answer is not thinking you don't need God. Or the answer is not pretending there is no God. Really, the basis of all those is is man trying to believe that there is no judgment of God or the idea that God won't judge me. Both are equally wrong. You will be judged of the Creator. God won't send me to hell. The first three chapters, what Paul has been demonstrating is that, yes, He will. Now you understand as we're getting to Romans 3.23, the basis behind Romans 3.23 that we use all the time in witnessing is just summing up what he's been demonstrating for three chapters. Put it in context of what it is that it doesn't matter if you're a pagan, if you're an idolater, if you're just turned over to your vileness and your wickedness, if you're a moralist, if you're into religion. You are condemned before a holy and a righteous God. So Paul now dives into how man can in fact be saved from the consequences of his sin, the guilt that he has, the certain judgment to come. He's going to show what leads to never aging again. The day will come when I have a new body and I will never age again. So let's dive into this this morning to get into the mechanics 
here that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 3, that the Lord gives us in Romans chapter 3, of how salvation actually works. And it's in this, by the way, you begin to see why there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is why it's narrow. This is why there's only one way. This is why purgatory is not true. This is why it's not through a priest. This is why it's not through good works. You begin to understand why this is the only possible answer for man's condition before a holy and a righteous God. It is the only answer in existence. Now, I have broken this text into four... Paul gives four areas here of how salvation works, the mechanics behind it. I put them down as four S's for those who like to take notes. I'll give them to you right now so you can write them down. Number one, we're going to see the source of salvation. Number two, we're going to look at the scope of salvation. Number three, we're going to look at the system of salvation. And number four, we're going to look at the satisfaction needed for salvation. So verse 21 and the first part of verse 22, let's start with the source of salvation and how this works. Now remember, you have to keep in context context chapters 1, 2, and 3. In ourselves, we are condemned and without hope. All right? Verse 21 now. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Here, Paul is diving into, as he gets into this, the source of salvation. Again, man has a major problem. He is guilty. He is a sinner. He is condemned as a result. We are dying as a result. It is physical and it is spiritual death. How can this problem possibly be resolved? It cannot be that God just forgives. Multiple times people think, if I, just, if I could just say, God, forgive me. We forget God is just It is not forgiveness alone, as we're going to see. That's not enough. It's part of it. But it's not a matter of of that. That's not how this is going to work at all. Forgiveness alone does not solve the problem. A holy and a just God. Holiness needs to be, that standard needs to be met, and justice needs to be satisfied. Forgiveness is a part of it. So that is not the answer. So how can I stand before a holy and a just God innocent when I am in fact guilty. Again, to answer this, we start off with two great words leading us into this. But now. Even though man has no help, hope in himself, in anything he does or tries, but we now come to this, but now God. God is the one who gives the hope. He is the one who provides the solution. Somehow, I have to be able to appear as if I am completely innocent. When I am am in fact very guilty. So Paul starts off immediately giving the source of this salvation, which will lead to me looking innocent before a holy and righteous God. And he gives it immediately. But now, the righteousness of God. The source of what's going to make me look innocent is the very righteousness of God. Not of myself, but the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God in this text does not refer to an attribute of God at all. There are times in the scripture when it does refer to an attribute of God, but that's not here. This is dealing with God's plan of making people righteous. Of providing His righteousness. The source of this righteousness is God Himself. It is God's righteousness is the answer to our problem. It is only through God's righteousness that I can become innocent or justified. 
We'll dive more into this. And this, by the way, as Paul points out, which is going to be very important, he's telling him, listen, he says, what I'm telling you is not new. The fact of how salvation works, that what man needs, this guilty man who all are condemned, it doesn't matter who you are, how righteous you think you are, you are condemned before God. The only possible answer is going to be God's righteousness. It lies in that. And he's going to dive into how that works. Well, how does that possibly save me? That's what he's going to get into. And he says, listen, this isn't new. This was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Look over in Romans chapter 4. He quotes here from Genesis chapter 15, from Psalm chapter 32. We see this also brought up in Isaiah chapter 53, but I'll get to Isaiah 53 in a few minutes. But let's look where it's in the law and the prophets. Romans chapter 4. Paul demonstrates that this, this, is, this righteousness of God... This has been God's plan all along. There's nothing different. This is what was to come with the Messiah. Verse 2 says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath wherefore to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and get this, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, jump down a few verses. Look at verse 6. Now we're going to the prophets. Even as David also described it, the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Look at the result of that. Saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This has been God's plan all along. It's in the law. It's in the prophets. It is covered throughout all of Scripture. This is the answer. Isaiah 53 gets into that, but I want to save that for later. So the Old Testament talked about this imputed righteousness. And please understand, this is exactly what you need in order to be saved from a holy and a just God. Well, how is this done? How is that even possible? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Look, look, look where he's going with this. He's saying, listen, I made this possible. My righteousness. Again, we're not dealing with an attribute of God right now. That's not what Paul is talking about. He is, he is diving into how you are able to be saved from your condemnation, from your guilt. You hear me bring this verse up every week. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's probably my favorite verse in regards to salvation because it sums up so much of salvation in, in, in just a few words. Describing what took place when Jesus Christ was here. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God, knowing we are guilty, we are condemned, that within ourselves we have no hope. There is nothing you could do to save yourself. You are condemned before a God who is perfectly righteous, who is perfectly just, and who is perfectly holy. That's never changing. That's why it cannot possibly be, all they have to do is tell God, I'm sorry. All they have to do is turn over a new leaf. It doesn't change God's justice. If James went out and he decided to go steal from the bank and murder two people and, and, and he gets arrested for it and, and he comes before the judge and he's found guilty as he is and he says, Judge, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And let's say you're there and it was your wife who was murdered. And he says, you know what? Go free. Would there be any justice? No. Would there be anger? Oh, yes. Why? Because there was no justice. What God has to do in order to save us, even though He loves us, 
He has to satisfy justice. That has to take place. So to do that, what he decided to do, and he knew this would work. This, it's just amazing. This would work. This would solve the problem. And of course, he's God. He knew this before he ever created the universe. God himself would become a man. Want to know why? To live the perfect life. Jesus Christ was, in fact, God in the flesh. He is the only one who has ever lived that never committed one sin. He was perfect. The only one who has ever lived who could stand at the judgment day as a man, and the Father could, in fact, say, You're innocent! I find no fault. Don't you find that incredible? How God had that orchestrated so perfectly at his own trial. When Christ was on trial. How from the chief priest to the governor of the day. All proclaiming. I find no fault. What he did with his life. Listen to me. He met the holy standard that was necessary. Apart from which, there is no salvation. Look at this great, great verse. I love this verse. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. This is dealing with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 14, for by one offering, speaking of Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice of his son, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wow. Through what was done on the cross, whatever, whatever transaction took place, how through the life that was lived and what God allowed to transpire on that cross, and we're going to get into that, it enabled that all those who come to him by faith are forever perfected. It looks as if I am perfect when I am not. By the way, that's forever. It is a false, horrible doctrine teaching you can lose your salvation. Getting multitudes of people to actually place their faith, not only in Christ, but also in themselves. And according to Galatians, that, that, that is no salvation. And he makes the point, Paul says, this is apart from the law. This is without the law. God's salvation through Christ, what, with what took place 2,000 years ago, it met the standards of the moral law. And provided such a far better atonement than what the ceremonial law gave us. You think about that. If the blood of bulls and goats, as it talks about in Hebrews, could cover sin, how much more the blood of his dear son? The law was never, ever about saving you. It was about condemning you. It was never a road to salvation, the Ten Commandments. It was to show you condemned. It was to show you your need of Christ. The purpose of the law was never to show how good you are, but to show how evil you are. There was a pastor I led to Lord in New Guinea, United Church pastor, Brother Keck, one of three that I led to Lord while I was there. This pastor, it was one of those divine appointments. Literally, he was walking down the road. I would have never have met him. He was on the other side of our island of New Ireland, a place that I, uh, that I never got to. Walking on the side of the road, and a coconut fell, hit him right in his head. And we actually had over 100 people die from that every single year. That's like a giant bowling ball falling on you. It's, it's serious weight. It hit him on that. He survived it, but he ended up in our aid station. And no doctor, but there's nurses there. And so every week I would go by there and do visits. And so I went by there to do visits, and I met him. His wife was there with him, just little open days. And, and usually when I got to give the gospel to one, everybody would come and listen. I, I usually couldn't wait to do it. 
And so he let me know he was a pastor of a united church. And so I got into asking his testimony of salvation, knowing very unlikely this man is saved. And sure enough, it was all of, he went right, I kid you not, he went right to the commandments. What he thought was a, a road to heaven. And immediately I went to him, I said, listen, I need you to listen to me. What you're trusting in to save you is not going to work. That's not what's there to save you. That's there to show you you're on your way to hell. And I went into the gospel, and oh, I used to get so excited when you see people get it. It was such a different reaction between the husband and wife. The wife showed nothing but anger and disdain. But you could see the conviction coming upon him. And I could see the moment he understood what Christ did for the first time in his life. And at the time, he was probably about 60. And he got it. And at that moment, I said, would you like to place your faith in Christ? No. Yes, I would. The law, there's multitudes of people who think, if I just meet this standard, you will never meet that standard. The rich young ruler that Christ approached, Christ trying to see him that he was condemned, knowing he thought he was a moral man. Oh, I have kept all these from my youth up. Oh, have you? Let me show you how wicked you are in one sentence. Let me show you your covetousness right now. I was just going to show you one command that you're breaking every day. Go and sell all that you have and follow me. Oh. Know what he realized right there? He was an idolater. He has things before God. I'm not making my life about God. I love everything I have. Multitudes think. It's one of the blinding angles of the devil that because of their, how moral they are, how religious they are, that they're fine. But this salvation is without the law. Point number two, the scope of salvation. I'm just going to briefly mention this because Paul has been developing this one for the last three chapters. We have been talking about this now for weeks, so I don't need to. But I'll just read the text and briefly mention it and go on to number three. I need to move on through this. He says this from the conclusion of verse 22. uh, uh, Is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all, Upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Here we see Paul touches on the scope of salvation. It's for all men. One, he's been dealt, for all have sinned, Paul's been making this case against since Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. It is for all. There is no one that God cannot save. No one. Don't ever believe the lie that you're in some place that somehow God cannot save you. It is for all men. All. Doesn't matter who you are. God desires to save you. He says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, let's go on to point number three. The system of salvation. Look at verse 24. This is how it all works. The mechanics behind it. We're getting into the engine. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's getting into the system of it here. Three key words. Justified, grace, and redemption. All are necessary. Now, let's dive into this. Let's get into the engine. Justified. This is a a legal or forensic term. A Greek word meaning, get this, to declare righteous. To declare perfect. Justified. So let's see what God did so he could save us from hell. That we could be justified. That somehow I could stand before the perfect, holy, and righteous God. And yet when he looks at me, it looks as if I am perfect. Without guilt. Without sin. Without condemnation. You see, God declares. The word means to declare righteous because of what Christ did. God declares a sinner righteous solely for one purpose. On the merits of his dear son. On the merits of the life that his son lived. On the merits of his righteousness, not yours. God imputes unto a believer, unto a believer's sin, 
God, excuse me, God imputed a believer's sin, my sin, to Christ's account. Let's look at this. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 brought this up, but I want you to see in other, other areas. So what God did through Christ's life to declare me righteous, he still has the, Christ lived a perfect life, but I still have my sin. In order to be justified, to declare righteous, what about my sin? All right, let's look at this. Go over to Isaiah now. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53 now. Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to read a couple of verses here. I'm going to come back here again in a minute. This is how this was taking place. God became a man 2,000 years ago. All this was taking place so that you could be declared righteous in a manner that is in, in, in accordance with and meets a perfect standard of holiness and justice. So that it could legally happen before the Creator God Almighty. So God becomes a man. God the Son, 2,000 years ago, lives the perfect life. So now for the first time and only time in all of human history, a man has met the standard. Okay? But look what takes place when the cross comes into play, when he died for you. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 53. Surely, this is dealing with Jesus on the cross. He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Listen to this verse. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Listen to that again. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. So what took place on the cross, what God organized in order to save you, was he had his son, God, become man. He lived a perfect life. He met the holy standard. Then the cross comes into play. And on that cross, the first thing God did was this. Was he laid on his son our iniquities, all of our sin, as if he was the liar, as if he was the murderer, as if he was the idolater. He placed it upon him. And then he suffered and suffered and suffered. Why? To satisfy justice that had to be met. To satisfy justice. He suffered for you. And at the same time that he suffered for you, he then has your sin is imputed unto him. He then imputes unto you his perfect life. He changes places with you. We see that in look at look in Romans chapter five. It's not just Second Corinthians five twenty one. It is throughout the scriptures. I love Romans. I can't wait to get to Romans chapter 5. Such a great chapter. I don't even know where the book of Romans is now. I'm too excited. My body. I can't even find Romans. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 9. 18 is great, but I just got to go to 19 times sake. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. What's that talking about? Adam. Adam. We sin because it's in our nature. There's not one person capable of living a perfect life. Get this. So by the obedience of one shall many be, look at those last two words, made righteous. 
It's speaking of the righteousness of God, that you are made righteous. This isn't dealing with your righteous works or you attending church. This is dealing with an action of God imputing unto you his perfect righteousness. Making it look as if you were the one who lived the perfect life so that you could stand before him innocent. Innocent. Declared righteous, which is justified. This is how this works. He imputes Christ's perfect obedience to your life. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 3. How he, he was so in anguish over his own countrymen, the nation of Israel. Because they went about to what? Establish their own righteousness. Ignorant of God's righteousness. Which was the answer. The answer wasn't their own righteousness. In order to be saved from God, they needed God's righteousness imputed unto them, which only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only answer. He is the one who died for you. He is the one that lived the perfect life. He is the one that met the standard. This is how salvation works. The key is justification, not just forgiveness. It is justification that makes the forgiveness possible. And we want both. It, it, it's kind of like this. Let me give this illustration. Let's say, let, let's say there's this woman and she has this enormous debt at a store. And she asks for forgiveness from the store. Let's just say they agreed to it somehow. And they said, all right, the debt's forgiven. The truth is, though, it was never actually paid. Before God, that's not enough. Understand that. It's not. Even there in that situation, the store would always know the debt was never paid. Try and do that again. Try and get credit again there. See how that works for you. It won't. Do you understand that? Let's change the scenario slightly and put in justification in this. Let's say this same woman who has the enormous debt that needs forgiveness marries the owner's son. And he goes and says, what was that debt? Oh, it was this. Here's the money. It's now paid for. There's no charges that could ever be brought. There's now, it's done. It's over with. It's met. For justification to happen, we have the next key word. Grace. Grace. None of this happens without grace. Because you don't deserve this. One of the things that is killing our culture right now is this horrible, horrible attitude of pride and we deserve this. Our advertising, you deserve this. You, you don't deserve anything. Do you understand that? When it comes to salvation, you don't deserve it. If it's not of grace, it's not happening. For by grace are you saved. And grace simply means two words. Please don't forget these words. Unmerited favor. That means it is God showing you personally who you are, even though you don't deserve it. Favor. By the way, that will change your prayer life and everything else. Because so often what hinders us is we see how wretched we are. We don't think possibly God could accept me. Apart from grace, he would not. But he has chosen grace. He has chosen, even in our wretched condition, to favor you. Is that not amazing? If he does not choose grace, I assure you, God does not become a man 2,000 years ago to go through what he did to save you. He had to choose of his own volition, the Creator. I will use grace. Because he knew in order to save us, what would have to transpire in order to save mankind from judgment. Then how dare we not show grace to others? We get so full of bitterness and anger at others, and yet we beg God for his grace and mercy. And yet the perfect God shows us grace. And yet we as sinners don't like to show grace to each other. 
Let me quickly go on to the third word in this verse that's needed. Redemption. Again, we're getting into the mechanics of how this is working. Why God is able to save you. Why it's not just a prayer. This one's important. Redemption. He said this. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, this salvation is not free. A great price had to be paid. In order for all this to be possible, a tremendous price had to be paid that you could never pay. The imagery behind this word comes from the ancient slave market. It meant paying the necessary ransom to obtain the prisoner's or slave's release. In this case for us, what we're delivered from, I want you to understand this, don't miss this, is God. From his wrath. From the condemnation that we were under. There was a wage of sin that we were standing before almighty God and a price had to be paid to save us from it. And that was the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That was the price paid in order for redemption to take place. Just like Boaz was that kinsman redeemer of Ruth. We too, without even realizing it, were asking the question, who will redeem us? There's such a tremendous price to be paid. If I pay for that, I am in hell forever. Who will pay for my redemption? Lord Jesus Christ did. Because he paid the price with his own blood, it was paid in full. And salvation is now free to us. Freely given by his grace. Lastly, let's go to the satisfaction needed for salvation. Look at verse 25. Who God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Let me cover forbearance very quickly in a sentence because I, I, time is quickly escaping me here. And then I'll come back. I'm going to get to the propitiation. Forbearance. But what that means is God holding back wrath until such a time as you could be saved. God not executing what he could have justly and rightly... He forbear. Because he loved you. He desired to save you. But let's get to the primary, the satisfaction that this is dealing with that was needed for salvation. We have a great word here. The last element given, propitiation. Such a great word. It means to satisfy. In order for us to be saved, God's justice... And his holiness had to be satisfied. Amazing what took place for that to happen. The idea is that sin could be removed. That justice could be satisfied. And that's what happened through Christ. Paul is taking on a word, especially that the nation of Israel would know, because this word was used pretty much in one context in the Old Testament, the mercy seat when the blood was applied. That it served as a propitiation. For us, what satisfied the holiness and the justice, what satisfied the Creator, serves as that propitiation, was the blood of His dear Son shed on the cross. How dare you put your trust in anything else other than what God did to save you? He bore all the wrath of God for the sins of the world in those few hours on the cross. Look at Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 53. This is great. Love it. Isaiah chapter 53. 
This is one of those verses, boy, when I get to it, I'm in my reading and I'm going through Isaiah. It's such a, it can be a difficult chapter to get through. And the toughest verse for me is the verse we're going to look at. And that is verse 11. He shall see, this is God the Father looking on his son on the cross. He shall see the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. When he sees the suffering of his own son. He knew. This is working. This will satisfy perfect holiness. Perfect justice. What I'm going through right now. That I can save mankind. that I could declare them righteous. That I can make it as if they have never sinned. That I can make it as if they lived the perfect life. This is the one remedy for your condemnation. This is the one remedy for your sin. There is no other road. This is why it's not the waters of baptism. This is why it's not your good works. This is why it's not joining a church that saves you. It is only through Jesus Christ through that repentance, just like it said, that faith in Christ. This is why that thief on the cross could be saved in that moment in time. Because there was a satisfaction taking place before a holy and righteous God. And that man decided to place his faith in the only one who could save him, Jesus Christ. Christ. It's not in a church. This is, by the way, how I can know for certain I'm on my way to heaven. So many groups, you'll never know that for certain. Boy, when I was Catholic, you were, you were, that, was, that was put into you. Let's take it to the extreme. I was taught as I was Catholic that I'm going to go to purgatory. You know what else needs to take place? That my family and friends and my church back there, they need to pay for their candles to pray for me out of purgatory. What a scam. What a slap in the face to the blood of Jesus Christ that saves me. What saves me is not my family back on their knees buying candles from a church to plead my case. It was the Son of God living the perfect life in my place. Going to the cross and God Almighty saying, I will allow a transaction to take place where I will impute unto my son your vileness. And I will judge him in your place. And I will impute unto you his righteousness. God's righteousness. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We have been bought with a price. Aren't you glad that when verse 21 starts, there's a, but now. This is what He did to save you. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now, let me start by asking, we're